0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Today, our guest is Chris Lockhead, he of Lockhead on Different, and also podcaster supreme. Follow your different, Chris. Welcome. Always great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me, um, Robert.
0: <laughs> hey, you like it's the blue
1: shirt? As Robert.
0: Yeah. you like the blue shirt? Cause usually, you know, I, I don't go blue.
1: Yeah, I know. Normally we're in, we're doing black. So mixing it up is good. And, uh, actually shirt, uh, instead of turtleneck breakthrough, I think, because I'm pretty sure for the first 15 years, I knew you, it was pretty much black turtleneck.
0: Yes. Uh, it's, it, it was a way of simplifying life I found and. uh, it's good. There. Chris, uh, just over on a, a, a somber serious subject for a minute, uh, we are recording this episode here on September 11th. And I know in our, our previous chats, you have mentioned having attended the 9-11 museum. Just talk about that a little bit, would you please, and the impression it made on you?
1: Yeah. Um, I, like, I think probably you know, a fair number of people had mixed feelings about going because on one hand I wanted to go. And on the other hand, you know, it's heavy and, and, you know, it's going to drive a whole set of emotions. Um, but I went, I went with a good buddy of mine and, um, here's the thing I think that blew me away the most. So I expected to feel moved by what happened and I was, and, and had those kinds of emotions and, and the anger and the sadness and so forth. Um, but the other thing that happened beyond sort of thinking about the event itself, the day itself, and all of the components of, of that day, I was blown away by the memorial, by the museum itself. And I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the museum itself. If they have, I've missed it. But I think the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York is a great example of the absolute power of the human spirit. This place is so incredibly well done. It is so thoughtful, Bob. I mean, I know you've been there. It is so caring. It is, it, I don't know, this may be a funny way. It's, on, it's so on point, like the respect and 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 sort of the the showcasing of the lives we lost and of the heroes of that day uh, and of the tragedy of that day. it's so respectfully done it's so carefully thought every single step in the place is carefully and thoughtfully done and to me it's a powerful example of the human spirit to take such a tragedy, such a a stain, such a, a hole in all of our hearts who remember that day, who were alive on that day, and to turn it into that acknowledgement, that honoring of all of it, I, I was blown away. It made me um, proud to be a human being in the sense of when human beings come together with a, a massive commitment to do something legendary for something that matters so much to so many, and they create the memorial itself, I think it's one of the greatest um, creations in modern American history, just the, the, the thoughtfulness and the care of the memorial itself.
0: Yeah, Chris, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the the scale of the place is astonishing, and yet it isn't about, a, you know, some – crass thing of showing you know twisted metal and broken pieces and you know heart-wrenching videos but it is about this this connection that comes together and to me um, I I thought one of the most powerful pieces of it is high up on a wall in this central part uh, they've got a quote from Virgil and uh, he says no day shall erase you from the memory of time so It is a forward-looking piece there, and I think everything that you said about how um, incredibly personal, well done, and in some remarkable way, uplifting that place can be. So,
1: No, it is uplifting. That's the crazy thing. You go in expecting to be emotionally crushed, and there are very many crushing things there. There are many memories that come back. Um, I learned a few things that I didn't know or, or maybe had forgotten. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that's those sorts of experiences are true for a lot of people who go. Um, uh, but I was blown away by the memorial, and, and you do leave uplifted. The other thing I need to say, I don't know if you noticed this. I was, I was stunned by this. The number of parents who brought young children, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 12-year-olds, um, I, I, was, I was blown away by that. And, and, and somehow, I don't know, that's uplifting too, that a parent would bring a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. And I, I thought, I was amazed by that.
0: The final thought for me on that, Chris, is for the years leading up to when the museum opened, <clears throat> there would be lines of people standing on the sidewalk, looking through the construction fence, year after year after year, 12 months a year, lined up, there's something about that place that just riveted human spirit. People I'm certain from every country on earth looking in there just trying to understand to touch the place in some way. And so as you've described it, what they have created in this memorial is something that is that fulfills that desire for people, I think in some way to touch um, a part of our lives and to have their children maybe get some sense of what went on in an almost untouchable experience or untouchable event. It's, it is, as you said, legendary.
1: And the thing about that, and I think you just uh, captured it incredibly well. It, the, 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 the wildest thing about the place is it captures the worst of humanity and the best of humanity at the same time. And it leaves you inspired because of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for your thoughts there. That's a, it's a powerful thing. And I I would certainly second you in urging, um, anybody who's around there to go see it. It's, it's, uh, it will be one of the most unforgettable experiences. Think of somebody's life. Um, so Chris, if we move from something quite profound to some things that are interesting, maybe a little playful, you had a few things on your list. So, um, last time you talked a lot about the digital life that people have, you know is in some ways for kids younger people it's it's the real thing you know the this physical world is not so much the real world it's the digital world and we we talked a little bit about that and uh, you've you've got some here about dating apps and marriage what do you make of this
1: yeah so uh... You know, ever since we talked, and it was sort of rolling around in my head for, I don't know, maybe about a week or so before that, two weeks before that, something like that. So it's, this has been fresh in my head, and our conversation sort of lit up um, uh, my brain even more on it. This idea that what if it's actually true that there's some meaningful segment of the population who their, let's just call it physical life, is in many ways, an interruption to their digital life. Unlike you and I, where our experience of being alive is, we're alive in the physical world, and we have a digital experience that takes us from the physical world. You could argue adds to it. I mean, there's a lot of positive things about it, otherwise we wouldn't do it. I you know, I'm a huge fan of it for the most part. Um, But but then we put down our computer or our phone or whatever, and we have a conversation, or we go for a walk, or we enjoy a meal, or whatever. Or you know, we go to whatever it is we do, right? We we engage, whatever it is. Uh, but there's a meaningful percent and a and a growing percent of the population who their digital life is their life, right? The esports and all that. So this this story is fascinating. So last time as part of that, I think we talked about the fact that there are a fair amount of reports out there, I'm sure popularized mostly by, uh, by, um, dating, dating websites, but that say that approximately 50% of marriages in the United States are, um, uh, originate digitally. So that's fascinating. But then this here is the wall street journal says that, um, dating apps are making marriages stronger and that couples who meet online tend to communicate better and have longer and happier relationships, and that the rate of marital, marital breakups for people who met online was 25% lower than people um, who meet in person. And if you read the article, that one of the things they say in here is that people have an easier time now, Bob, opening up and being vulnerable and uh, communicating digitally and so I thought it was an interesting build on the theme we started last time. And it was, a, it was an insight for me, which is, wait a minute. We're now in intimate, hey, get to know you, maybe go out with you, maybe, you know, maybe you're my spouse, maybe you're not discussions. We are now at a place in the evolution of human beings, Bob, if you believe this stuff. And again, I'm sure it's... Um, uh, influenced a little by some of these companies, but this is coming out from the Pew Center. So I don't know, it seems pretty legit. We're now at a place where um, in what you could argue is the most intimate of relationships and at the most um, potent time, which is the beginning where we get to know somebody who might be a potential mate or partner. um, We're now saying that people communicate more effectively digitally. So they don't just meet more effective digitally, they actually get to know each other better. And that leads to longer marriages. That's what the story says. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Chris, funny, you know, in this, this digital world, the, uh, you know, you hear over and over and over about data, you know, let's talk about the data, talk about the data, data driven, data centric, you know, all these things. But the data that the data point that you mentioned here, that uh, if you met online and got to know each other online there is a 25 percent better chance that your marriage right marital breakup will will not happen and so it, it's the, the data support this is not just some fuzzy feeling somewhere if if these particular data are to be believed
1: well and look it says according to a 2016 pew research center poll half of americans know something you know it goes on and on right so this is based on what sounds like some pretty legit research now is it very possible that uh, match.com sponsored this research you know it is who knows so uh, but I, I you know i i don't mean to be cynical but regardless yeah this is a fascinating point and it just it just be, you know now i start to see it everywhere which is i start to notice things that indicate that our digital life is our quote unquote real life and our physical life is is either less important or an interruption or, you know, that, that our digital ability, our digital experience of our lives is becoming more and more of what our lives are truly about. And you know, that was the insight around, around, you know, the the kids who, who were visiting, which is they're not looking at the sunset because the sunset's interrupting whatever's going on on their phone. Right. And, and that I didn't get it because that's their real life, not the sunset it to be, and so now I just i I see it everywhere, right once you notice something, you begin to see it everywhere, and I think this is an interesting example that marriages are stronger when people meet online because they communicate more effectively and more vulnerably and and so forth,
0: yeah. Chris, it's powerful stuff, and I know that there's uh, in movies and books and all. There's always been this search for, you know, what's real, what's a dream, where do those worlds cross? Is there some other uh, consciousness? I don't want to. I'm trying to get overly heavy or weird about this whole thing, but perhaps what seems quirky or odd or unusual to us, your larger point seems to be, hey, you can call it whatever you want, but it is becoming not fringe. This is mainstream you know, 50% of relationships are begun online today?
1: Yeah, apparently. Uh, So there you have it. Sorry, digital life is our life and our physical life continues to interrupt. it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the pit stop. You got to go in there to into the pit to charge those devices and get back to life. So Chris, we're talking a little bit about the Uh, blessed state of matrimony and all that. And now you've, you've uncovered a little wrinkle here about uh, floral arrangements and how we try to celebrate these great occasions.
1: Yeah. So God bless America. (laughs) There's a trend apparently, according to NBC news and there was a CNBC article about this and so forth that uh, a trend now in marriages is we put pot in the wedding bouquet and, even in some cases, like in the floral arrangements, you know, at the dinner table or wherever. And so we have we have cannabis now. Um, and, and so there's the headline here says, saying I do with your best buds. <laughs> <laughs> and then I love, the, it's just like a bunch of funny headlines. There's something blooming when it comes to wedding planning. <laughs> Brides are using cannabis plants to arrange bridal bouquets. The growing trend in marijuana matrimony. How do you like that for a new category? Has guests uh, waking up and smelling the roses as couples take their special day to a higher level? (laughs) Yeah. There you have it.
0: If Match.com was involved in some of the earlier research, perhaps... Uh, yeah, I guess some of the cannabis companies now, it's like, hey, let's get into content marketing and start pumping this stuff out.
1: See well, we can- and see, here's the thing. Um, we, maybe we've been looking at this wrong. Maybe Cheech and Chong had this right the whole time. See, <laughs> most weddings have an open bar, right? <laughs> and have you ever been to a wedding where you know shit gets weird? Like I went to a wedding. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. <laughs> I went to a wedding where the groom got into a fight with his father-in-law and it was not cool at all and the groom ended up in jail. He spent the wedding night in jail because (laughs) he incited a fight with his father-in-law who, uh, the father of the woman he just married, they got into a fight at the reception. And the cops showed up and the groom went to jail so that he could chill his nuts out. He, I don't, Nobody got charged with anything and nothing got, you know, nobody got really hurt, but it was got that stupid. So, and here's the thing, alcohol was involved. So maybe now you go to weddings and it'll be like an open cannabis bar and you'll have a bud tender and everybody will have a little toke and calm, calm down, right? Because... People can have anxiety, they can get upset, they can drink too much, they can incite fights and end up in jail, and maybe now pot's going to like chill everybody out, a little Cheech and Chong going on.
0: My goodness. That, yep, Chris, it's a a scary world out there sometimes. I mean, the guy's, he's got 50 or 60 years to fight with his father-in-law, but he he couldn't wait one day, 24 hours?
1: No, no, right there. I mean, we're talking hours after actually marrying his daughter.
0: Mm. Well, I, maybe it's this whole, you know, this real-time stuff, the urgency of, of the moment.
1: Yeah, and the funniest part of the whole thing was the cops said, they get called to weddings all the time. <laughs> but probably not for,
0: <clears throat> for the groom, but who knows, who knows. Uh, Chris, sometimes the, uh, the outcome, the fruit of matrimony can be a little bundle of joy a little a little baby and you know we all want to take the best possible care of babies and now it seems like uh there are new the a- world of ai has entered uh, uh baby care
1: yeah so google it, it's not enough for them to have a quote speaker in your house and listen to everything you say right mm-hmm. that's not that's not enough now what we're gonna have is a google ai quote unquote um and, and by the way, my, my friends at Grumpy Old Geeks, the legendary podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, uh, Brian Schulmeister, and of course, Jason DeFilippo, they get furious when anybody says AI. Okay. Because they say their point of view is there is no AI, there's, there's machine learning, and then there's human beings. And there's no, there's no there, you don't actually talk to how. <laughs> We're not actually there yet. But anyway, they get very funny about how much they hate the word AI. That said, Google's building an AI baby monitor, and get oh, wow. this, the device would aim, oh, and they, they, we found this out because they filed these patents, so this oh. is how the news came out.
0: So the product's so
1: not out yet. yet. are in the development, but the patents just hit, and the media got hold of this thing. The device would aim to determine when the baby is, quote, in a non-auditory discomfort state, end quote. A non-auditory discomfort state. Who said, Who talks like that? What does that mean? I think it means if your baby you know, looks distressed. I think that's what that means. But I, a non-auditory discomfort state. Fucking A, guys. Anyways. And will inform caregivers up to 10 minutes ahead of the baby waking up, according to a patent. Now, get this. This is how they're going to do it. Google's smart... AI machine learning baby monitor will have, quote, eye eye tracking technology that would detect when a baby is awake, asleep, or close to stu- stirring. Using video streaming, audio recording, and AI, sorry guys, the device will monitor the baby's behavior against a database of normal patterns. So they're going to have video streaming of your baby in real time with eye tracking technology and so they're going to monitor everything about your baby and they're going to compare that against all the other billions of babies in their database to tell you whether something's up with your baby or not.
0: My goodness. Chris, what, uh, I don't know. The, some of the language that's used there is uh, the non-auditory discomfort state. I believe I experienced a non-auditory discomfort state every once in a while, but I I try not to re- use this sort of. Normally, it's
1: after a night of drinking.
0: Yes, yes, so weddings even sometimes. You know, we'll, we'll yeah, exactly. Out. Weddings can go. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris, last episode, just I, I got to touch on this because your your point about artificial intelligence and there's no such thing. But last time you talked about was it uh, Goldman Sachs and the five year study on copywriting uh, content Chase, development. Yeah. Uh, Chase, JP Morgan Chase, sorry. And they spent five years doing that. And it turns out that the ones created by non-human entities were more effective than the ones created by humans. So I just think the term AI is odd because it's artificial means it's not real, but that, that was pretty darn real.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. This, though, is fascinating because, of course, like all of this stuff, you got to think about the pros and the cons. There's a case to be made that this kind of monitoring of a child could save lives. It may be many, many lives. Maybe um, the physical movements of of an infant um, stored in a database, um, there will be dots connected that we couldn't have imagined. It's, It's almost you could say it's almost likely that there will be some fascinating breakthrough insights that will come that potentially could have a huge positive uh, benefit. And you could argue if it saved one baby's life, then it would be worth everybody jumping in and doing this thing. The other hand, on the other hand, however, Google will now have ongoing streaming video of your children. They'll know by definition how many children you have. Um, they'll know a whole bunch of things about your family. They'll know who your caregivers are and, or, or certainly they'll know who you give access to this feed, right, and by definition that person is a caregiver or somebody important in your life and the child. I mean, you just think how much more Google will know about human beings and about specific human beings. Um, and, and so Google wants to analyze you from the minute you show up,
0: yeah. and when you're not even awake, uh I like that thing about it will uh notify you ten minutes before the the baby wakes uh, that's pretty precise I, I had so maybe there's some algorithm that does all that, but because I think, you know, like a lot of companies, you look at some of the biggest tech companies and many other types of companies as well, in or out of the tech industry. But since Google's in tech, right, this issue of trust, you know, rise to the top. So the point you just made about the potential benefits of this, on, on the other hand, the trade-offs. I think you've got to earn a whole lot of trust right before you're going to start letting somebody uh, have any insight into what's going on with your baby. So I, I'm not sure. Uh, so I, in some ways, admire their, uh, their willingness to push the boundaries of research and all this. This is, I, I, I get the creeps from this.
1: I, it, I mean, it, it fires up my George Orwell. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hey, so if you could do this for babies, now, why not for, you know, uh, <clears throat> a middle-aged guy? Maybe like, hey, your nap's long enough. You got a to-do list. It's time to wake your ass up.
1: Well, and at what point are they going to come forward with uh, an, uh, an argument, and maybe a legitimate one, who knows, that doing having a, um, uh, a an adult monitor is what you want. So all of everything they just said is now pointed at you and I, and it's going to give us all sorts of data around, you know, how much REM sleep we get and this and that and the other. And, you know, there'll be some argument about why this AI streaming nanny cam for yourself is a really good thing because it'll improve your health because you'll know all the stuff or i don't know what i'm making this up but the, there will come some argument for why we should do this to ourselves i mean they're already sleep monitors yeah right so hmm. this isn't this the next evolution in sleep monitors even for for non-babies
0: well and the case is strengthened for that sort of approach when you reflect back on some of your comments from a few minutes ago about for a growing number of people, the digital world is the real world. That's, that is, uh, that's a place where I exist and want to exist. And if this enhances my digital life, well, heck, yeah, it's good. Let's go get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decline.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of news coming out of Google now about how they're integrating the Nest stuff. And they're, I think they're now calling it Google... Uh, yeah, Google Nest Hub Max, uh, the bigger Nest Hub is. Well, this I guess CNET doesn't like it, but they've they've built this hub thing now where everything connects. Um, so all of the cameras and speakers and all, all of the in-home IoT type stuff that they're doing, they've sort of pulled it together in a suite that I think they're calling the um, Google Nest. And this is the this is the review here on CNET on the Nest Hub Max, which sounds like they don't really like. But yeah, it's it, it's got screens and cameras and speakers and <laughs> oh my.
0: Hey, Chris, what uh, you know, you, you're talking about that name and you know, in your former CMO life, <clears throat> you're reflecting a little on the naming there. Did you hear this morning that uh, Salesforce has come out with a new ad campaign, marketing campaign.
1: This almost sounds like you're setting me up for a joke.
0: (laughs) No, 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 I wouldn't do that. But they say that they want to try to, you know, all the things humanize their brand and all that. But it's like we connect companies with their customers. That's their their basic approach there. And it's interesting because Salesforce doesn't sell to consumers, but the ad and marketing campaign is going to be aimed at that. And I thought it was an interesting angle here for a tech company and i wondered if you get your uh cmo disgruntifier bob later on and see what you think of that
1: here's what i think about it i think bob evans and the cloud wars team is doing a very good job because i just as you were talking i googled salesforce i clicked on news and the first thing that comes up is cloudwars.com salesforce demolishing b2c and b2b with slick new ad campaign. Well, so right. you guys are killing it on the uh on the making a independent media company thing happen here uh, Senator Evans. That's the first thing <laughs> I think.
0: <laughs> I was was I groveling for compliment there? Was it that obvious? That transparent? I'm sorry. <laughs> I just say um, it's so it, it, it just, I think, a reflection more, right? That these big technology companies stepping out of their former uh, sort of isolated roles and coming into people's lives. Uh, you know, uh, Salesforce, Benioff has been saying over and over. He said every company has, whether you sell through channels or partners, you got to have a direct relationship with the customer. And I just think it's so interesting that they are choosing now to come try to inform the world about how they help businesses do that. It's uh, it's a sign well,
1: of, I think. The interesting thing too is how simple the idea is. Quote, we bring companies and customers together.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but there is this feel-good thing that companies are trying to wrap themselves in today um, more than ever. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal not long ago about how there's a group of CEOs, Fortune 500 type CEOs who are saying companies have to be on a mission greater than just delivering returns to shareholders and there's got to be some kind of a, a good for people good for the world social good component and and that over uh, over overly focusing on quarterly earnings and um uh, there are a lot of venture capitalists now there's a lot of debate in silicon valley right now around quote unquote the ethics or the morals of venture capital and uh, if you had a and you know the big the big parlor question in silicon valley right now is if you had an opportunity to invest in jewel and make a ton of money knowing what we now know uh would you you know so there's all this discussion about sort of the role of companies and 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 should it be bigger than just uh making money and so it's interesting to see salesforce doing this
0: yeah and chris i wanted to uh Use that just to touch over on a, a company you admire greatly, and that is the medium through which we're connecting right now, Zoom, and your buddy, Eric Yuan, you had some interesting uh, interesting little details and thoughts about that as well.
1: Yeah, in this regard, I think, you know, as you and I were growing up in the tech industry, there were a lot of um, very tight-knee type, you know, Darth Vader-y dudes starting and running companies, right? And sort of this very sort of uh, manly, macho sort of vibe for, for a lot of uh, tech CEOs and entrepreneurs and, and sort of rule with an iron fist and sort of that, that sort of a character or, or image.
0: Yeah, Chainsaw Eric? Al Dunlap, you know, right? Part of his Chainsaw name. Al,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How would you like to... Well, so here's the point on Eric... Uh, he's the opposite of Chainsaw Al. And nobody's calling him Chainsaw Eric. And um, this guy, I think, is emblematic now of, of what we're starting to see the new founder CEO. His whole thing, we just had him, he's been on uh, my podcast twice and he just came back. So they just did an IPO. The company's valued north of $20 billion, it's an eight year old company. They raised three hundred and fifty something million dollars in, in a crazy wow. successful IPO. Eric's now a multi billionaire. Um, and if you listen to the episode, or you talk to him, or you hear him anywhere, um, he's he's like this. Um, and I say this in a in the most laudatory way I can say it. He's this very simplistic sage-like, almost Yoda-esque in the way he talks, right? Just like you, you, so you ask him a question like, hey, Eric, how do you build a legendary business that in eight years goes public, raises over $300 million and is worth over $20 billion and personally turns you into a billionaire? How do you do that, right? And I, I'm exaggerating on purpose, but yeah, you, you ask him, you know, how do you be successful in business yeah. as an entrepreneur, things along those lines? He says, well, um, you hire people. You make them really happy. Um, You focus on making your customers happy. Uh, It's really important to make your investors and your partners happy. And if you create an environment where your people are happy, and your customers are happy, and and your investors and your partners are happy, you'll be happy and successful. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. it's it's. And then I got to show you this. Let me grab it. there's this website, Glassdoor, where it's sort of the Yelp of companies, uh-huh. right, where employees go on and, 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 and rate their employer anonymously, of course. And so if you go on Zoom, if you go on Glassdoor and you take a look at Zoom, let me make sure I get this right. Uh, the ratings on zoom and Eric are absolutely, uh, absolutely crazy. Um, They're in the nineties. I'm not pulling this up quickly enough, but the bottom line is they, they, the employees get to rate the company. They say, would they refer a friend to work at this company and they get to rate the CEO and on all of these dimensions, Bob, it's in the high nineties, like wow. like a ninety seven percent approval rating for Eric as a CEO.
0: Unbelievable, unbelievable. Chris, what was your point about you know, the uh, his eight, eight oh. tries? He has a, he, quite a record, and you know what you've always said about perseverance.
1: Yeah. So here is the interesting thing. So uh, Eric is a um, like myself, an immigrant to this country. Uh, unlike myself, he's from China. And when he was a young engineer in China, um, he saw Netscape go public at the beginning of the internet when, you know, I mean, you remember it well, of course. And there was something in him that said, I, I got to get to the United States. I got to get to Silicon Valley. I I, I want to be part of this. And, and it was a very hard thing for him to get into the United States as a young engineer. And it took him eight tries uh, to get accepted to come here. And, I look at that and it fires me up to say, hey, we got to get on figuring out entrepreneur, uh, immigration for entrepreneurs, right? Why, why are we, this guy, in my opinion, is emblematic of the American dream, of the entrepreneurial dream, and the immigrant dream, which of course are all sort of intertwined with each other, right? But it's the classic story. Immigrant comes here, applies himself, figures some shit out, goes for it. And now- has created a $20 billion plus publicly traded company that has built an incredible technology, an incredible category. He's created a tremendous amount of wealth and he's a freaking billionaire and he's making a giant difference in terms of this wonderful technology that we're currently using that, you know, many, many thousands of people love. Right. And so my point is, Hey, Uh, what's the immigration strategy on trying to attract as opposed to repel the Erics? That's where I go and it makes me angry and I get all fired up. Here's what Eric says when I ask him about that. You ready?
0: Yeah.
1: I think it was a good thing that it was really hard for me to get into the United States because it taught me as a young man perseverance and I have persevered over and over and over again in the face of ridiculous odds. And so I think it was a good thing. Right. And, and so like this guy is just like a happy sage and he could look at something like that as a positive when it makes me angry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it is a remarkable story. what's gone on there with him, but he had the idea and you said, you know, he's kept a sense of humility. doesn't try to make it up in, you know, clash of the Titans and, and all this. He's just saying, you know, keep make, make people happy, do good things. You know, keep I I love that. I asked
1: him the question, you know, what it was like to go public and, and so forth and so on. And, and he said, well, we celebrated for half a day. And then we got back to execution. Because we got to continuously make our customers happy and make our people happy and make our investors happy. And, and like he just, and you kind of believe him, that's probably what happened. He probably had a celebration for the morning when you when you, you know, ring the bell. And then um, I bet you at one o'clock he was on a conference call with customers or partners or somebody or looking at product. I, I, I have no doubt.
0: Yeah. Chris has a story from uh, what is 20-ish years ago after uh, Microsoft's IPO. And there was a report, I think from Fortune, or, uh, but he was allowed to spend a little time with Gates after the IPO and Gates was walking to one of the offices where some of the developers were and a couple of them had these charts hanging on their cubes and it showed the you know rapidly climbing stock price right after the IPO for Microsoft. And they said uh, the reporter says Gates, you know, pulled one tugged one of these things off the wall and he said to the developer, Does this help us sell more software? So this uh, this notion of whether it's celebrating or Diluting the focus onto things that aren't necessarily right. Uh, Pretty good line there from the uh, sage Mister Yuan to to figure. Okay, let's have a little fun. That's not the goal. So let's get back on target.
1: Yeah, just he's so endearing, and uh, uh, I think it's 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 an incredible story. It's an incredible inspiration for all of us. Um, And even if you're not entrepreneurial yourself. Um, you know, if you're somebody who believes in the American dream, the power of technology to make a difference. I, and look, I know to some people, this sounds corny. I, I don't care. You know, it's easy. being pessimistic, being negative is easy. And, and sometimes, look, I get it. And I can go there too. And maybe sometimes you could argue it's called for I, I would give you that. But I choose to have a little bit more of an optimistic uh, view. And I, I look at an entrepreneur like Eric, and and I think, um, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of negativity around uh, Silicon Valley lately and, and some of it deserved. But I think when an entrepreneur does what this man has done, um, I think I think, he, he, I think it's worthy of celebration for all of us who believe in innovation, who believe in technology and, and support entrepreneurship.
0: Not corny at all, Chris. It's one of the reasons we love you. It's one of the reasons why Follow Your Different has become one of the top podcasts in the world. And thank you so much for uh, being part of the show here today. It is always a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. I love doing this with you, Bob.
0: You're the best. And uh, next time, maybe we'll talk about you got fire on your desk. We'll see what's going on there.
1: It looks more dramatic on the Zoom video than it actually is in person.
0: (laughs) See, it's just one more thing that Eric is doing for you. (laughs) Exactly. All right, brother. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to all of you folks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live. Enjoy it, and we'll see you next time.